or my umbrella. Whenever I do my tours in Israel, I tell everybody, bring an umbrella. It's not going to rain, but it's at least 10 degrees cooler under the umbrella, right? And uh, I also tell them to bring walking sticks. But, you know, the older people, they don't want to bring a walking I don't need a walking stick. And so I bring three sets of walking sticks and pass them out as we do certain areas. And they're just, this is wonderful. Why didn't I think about this before? <laughs> anyway, I did something up here. Someone at Mount, Mont, Mont, I guess it is, Eagle, bought some, brought some clay. So I'm going to just try and see with our cylinder seal. It's, uh, I understand. It's by two of them limestone, and they would carve into it. So if you were like a secretary of a king, you know, you'd have that, and they'd actually have a little, where they could wear it as a necklace, so they'd always have it with them, and they'd roll it to verify something. So we'll do that. Maybe it'll come out. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I don't have it on a nice board like the guy who came to my meetings had it. But we'll do it. Maybe you can come and look afterward if you'd like to kind of see the impression that is left in the clay afterward. Yep. So, you can kind of check that out afterward if you'd like. So, up early this morning because I had the pastor's meeting. Enjoyed sharing with the pastors. It was a, used to be my favorite part of camp meeting because you never knew who you would have. Would it be Bill Shea or... George Reed, or just these different scholars that would come, and so, anyway, it was a joy to be with them this morning, but it, I got up awful early, it seems, or went to bed very late, one or the other. Anyway, I'm glad we can share this morning, this afternoon, just uh, kind of want to review a couple of little things, and if we have time at the end, I'm going to share what I shared with them this morning about my journey through Pisgah and uh, to the Rolling Stones concert. If not, I'll make sure we do it tomorrow afternoon, okay? So we'll do it one way or the other. So just a note about the tours, I'm sorry, I'm not, uh, I've been so tentative about doing tours lately because of COVID. And when I was doing the archaeology meetings in Mont Eagle, I decided I'm going to go ahead and do a tour this fall. So that's why I don't have anything with me. I'm just apologizing. You've got to go on the website if you want to know more about it. And uh, it is my favorite tour now, Egypt and the Bible. And... Uh, on the website, you can see all the different things. We do a hot air balloon ride optional. I used to look at with wonder when they would go on the hot air balloon rides, and now we have that option over the Valley of the Kings and Hatshepsut's Mortuary Temple, and it's pretty exciting to do. And then we're down in Aswan, and we do the Filet Temple in the evening, beautiful light show, and of course we do Mount Sinai, the traditional Mount Sinai. And uh, every other year, we do Footsteps of Paul in the fall, so next year, 2023, October, November. You heard me say I only go in the spring to Israel if I can help it. And, uh, but the spring is very cold in Turkey because a lot of Turkey is 4,000 foot elevation. So it's just much nicer to be there in October, late September. It's not really hot anymore and it's still warm and there's a lot of nice fruits for the vegetarian Tony. Turkey is a very meat oriented place and because they're wealthy and they have the money to do it and uh, so on. I just want to tell you a little bit, some people ask, how did you get into this anyway? Well, when I was converted, I had zero interest in the Holy Land, going to the Holy Land. I remember Ellen White said something like, if you want to walk where Jesus walked, you walk beside the beds of the poor, and you, the suffering, and the sick, and you minister to people, right? And I thought, if that's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. I don't need to go there. And then I uh, did a class 
with Bill Shea over there, and I became fascinated with it. Let me just share with you why. Here's Jerusalem. I'm standing on the Mount of Olives. I'm looking across the Kidron Valley to Zion, Mount Zion. There you can see the Temple Mount, and you can see that that is not the Jewish temple. It's the Dome of the Rock. It's the shrine, a Muslim shrine, third holiest shrine in the world for Muslims. used to be the holiest place in the world. When Christians took over Jerusalem and they did a Byzantine Christianity there, they actually used it as a dump, a refuse, to allow the prophecy of Jesus to layer to everyone that they had rejected the Messiah. Omar, who conquered Jerusalem in the 8th century or 7th century, goes out and he says, this is a holy place, and began to clean it up. And then they built the Dome of the Rock there. Over to the left, you can see the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that's all very interesting. I can't tell you a whole lot about that today. This is the Herodian Wall going down. i got to tell you this part of it. Jerusalem is built on a rock. So this rock is going down the hill. Up here, it's very wide. As it goes down further, it gets very narrow. The City of David, as you see on the screen here, is actually outside the walls of the current city. Current walls go back a lot of them to Ottoman times or to King Herod. This wall is going back to King Herod. So Jesus would have actually come up from the south, and that's where most of the people of his day would have entered the city. And, uh, and so it still has um, one quarter of the old city is the Temple Mount area. So anyway, it's very interesting because, I can't tell you all that. Mount Olives is about 400 feet higher than Jerusalem, and uh, of course on the other side is Bethany. But I went up to the first time to this place, and it really captured my imagination. This is called Banyas today, Banyas. And it's the, there's three sources of the Jordan River. This is the middle source of the Jordan River. And then it's the Banyas stream. Now, the stream used to come out of the cave. Earthquake activity has closed the cave, so it just springs up below it. And the ancients would go up there and worship Baal, because Baal was providing water for them from the, from the melting snow of Mount Hermon, you see? And so they worship Baal. Then Alexander the Great came through and the gods changed and he began to worship Pan, the Greek god of nature there. Thus it's called Panias, but in Arabic they don't pronounce the P, so they say Banias, the B. And then Herod the Great received it as a gift from Caesar, Augustus, and built a temple to Caesar there. And then his grandson, Philip, made it his capital and called it Caesarea Philippi that we read about in our Bibles. Okay, make sense? So here's this ancient Canaanite high place where Baal was worshipped, where Pan was worshipped, where Caesar was worshipped, and guess what Jesus does? He takes his disciples on a long hike, a long hike all the way up. Today it's at least an hour and a half by bus. Even when I race in a car, it's over an hour from the Sea of Galilee. They walk up for days on this field trip, maybe four days, five days, on this field trip where he's teaching them what does it mean to be Messiah. And for the very first time, he asked the question here in this high place, who do men say that I am? Remember? And what did Pete say? You are the Christ. Now, remember, it's not Jesus Christ like his last name. It's Jesus the Messiah. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, hey, Pete, you're not smarter than anybody else. The Holy Spirit, you know, has revealed this to you, right? And so the very first time that Jesus allows his disciples to call him Messiah and worship him is here. And I thought, you know, of the hundreds of villages, he took them here 
to say, I'm above Pan, I'm above Caesar, I'm above Baal, I'm the Messiah. And then he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Because the Jews were looking for a nationalistic deliverer. And I shared this with the pastors this morning as one of the keys to the fifth gospel. But anyway, they're looking for a deliverer who can get them out of the hands of Rome. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody because they may cut my work short. And if there's any trouble stirred up, Herod the Great will come after me. Josephus, by the way, tells us the reason that Herod the Great killed John the Baptist was because he was afraid that he was going to launch a messianic movement. By the time he got in charge of it, it would be out of control, and the Romans would take away his place as the ruler of Galilee and Perea. So that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So anyway, he says, don't tell anybody. So who's the first person? Jesus reveals his messiahship to the disciples here, but who's the first person that Jesus reveals his messiahship to? I'm sorry? A woman at the well, and the woman at the well was a Samaritan. Why? That's the grandson from Australia, but we'll talk to him later uh, on FaceTime. But anyway, uh, because she's a Samaritan, they don't have the baggage of Jewish nationalism. So he can tell her, but he can't tell Jews that because they'll try and make him king. That's why he's often slipping away. Even when you see him slipping up into Phoenicia and all these different places, he's trying to stay out of Herod's crosshairs because, as Mary said, a prophet can't be killed outside of Jerusalem, right? So he doesn't want to be caught up there and his life taken. So anyway, I saw that and it was so cool. And then I did a solo journey in 1987. I went from Damascus to Athens. I had three whole weeks to do that. Wow. I met people who had like two years on their travels along that travel. It was always fascinating when you travel by yourself. You meet all kinds of people. And I stumbled upon this. I was, I was in uh, Turkey. And I don't know how I had missed this in a picture, but this is called Pamukkale. Pamukkale, or Hierapolis. And Hierapolis is interesting because it has all this hot water that comes up in the calcium bicarbonate. It kind of lays down and does all these beautiful pools, as you can see. And then they had trained the hot water to go, and my thing's going to work, right down that little canal. You can kind of see it going off to the right. And it took the hot water down to the valley. So when I was down in the valley at Laodicea, look what I see off in the distance. Right? And so that hot water wasn't hot or cold. What was it? Lukewarm. And so, wow, I said, there's a, there's, there's a background to all of this. So it got me very excited about the geography and the history of these different places because it began to bring the story to life. And uh, that got me so excited about it. So we actually filmed there in the Paul series. That's actually a scene from the Paul series. If you've seen that series, it's pretty exciting. So my first time over, I... Uh, with Bill Shea, there was an Australian evangelist named Peter Roanfeld. He was a union evangelist. There were a couple of union presidents with him. And he told me about doing archaeology and evangelism. And how that in Melbourne, he did a series on Egypt and Petra, and then Patmos and the Seven Churches, and invited people and registered them for Revelation seminars all over the city. And I thought, well, that's, that's really creative. I like that. And so he taught me really to take pictures and to mingle with the people and to go off the road and do that. So I came back and created a series called In Search of Meaning from the Sands of the Past. Pastor mentioned that I did that in Raleigh before Sean Boonster's meetings a couple of years ago, and I'll do it this coming spring in Calgary, Alberta. So we'll do five presentations, and then we'll wrap up with When Iraq Ruled the World, and then Sean will come up and i say, now, Sean, you've been studying about an ancient dream that was given to an Iraqi king that a Jewish prophet interpreted, right? 
come share with us. And he's, he, he's really uh, great at that because he's emceeing the program every night. And uh, so he'll come up and he'll tease him. And the head of gold is, and they'll be hanging. you got to come on Friday night to find out. And so we were doing this in Portland, Oregon, and there was a Palestinian man there sitting next to a Jewish man in the audience. And when Sean did that, he said, oh, <laughs> just as what you'd expect from some of the, from that part of the world being so expressive. Oh, i got to come back. And they did. So out of that grew the series on the footsteps of Paul, and uh, we were able to do that. We really developed it originally as a small group resource, and so we have cards saying, coming to a home in your neighborhood. My friend Patty here on the second row has done many of these in her home, both in Florida and in Fletcher now, where they're at, she and Bud are at. But uh, it's wonderful to do as a small group in your home. Here's a home, actually, in Southern California where they're doing it. And, uh, and then we developed the footsteps of Jesus, same format. And there's beautiful brochures that you can use to actually advertise it. You don't have to have me there because if you bring me there, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to watch the film, then I'm going to take you through the study guide, right? I can tell stories, but you can do this. And it's something you and your church could actually host. It's got all these beautiful pictures inside that describe going. And it actually draws about the same as our archaeology brochure, which is very wonderful and very unusual. So we actually did this in... And uh, Johnson City was the first place I'd used this, and it drew six per thousand mailed out to the Johnson City Adventist Church. It's pretty incredible, those of you who do the other stuff you know. We also have postcards, and there's some postcards here on the table that talk about that, that say, coming to a church in your neighborhood. This happens to be a banner, and I did say tongue-in-cheek the other day. Wouldn't it be nice to have that banner out in front of your church? That way your neighbors know you do believe in Jesus, right? And again, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, here it is in front of the Johnson City Church, and we like that. While we were filming, we had some rather surprising things. Up on the hilltop is the Mount of Beatitudes Church, built by Mussolini. Go figure. But uh, the church used to be down below, but this whole hillside is unusual. Can you see the two people way up on the hill in the picture? Can you see that, the two little dots? There we're kind of, let's zoom in. That's my wife and our sound man. And I'm saying, if you can hear me, raise your hands. And I was talking to them because it's a natural amphitheater. Over 10,000 people can hear somebody speaking without amplification, without artificial amplification. Now, it might have been a miracle of voice projection when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount there. But most likely, he went to this spot because it was a natural amphitheater. And the huge crowds could gather and hear people speaking and hear him do the Sermon on the Mount. So that gets me very excited to see the geography and how some of these things can work together and fit together. People often ask, how does our message fit in? Well, I just want to remind you, what's our message? Jesus is our message, right? So the purpose of this series and the Patriarch series and the Paul series is to focus upon the story that we're advertising and talking about. However, there are often times when unique doctrines can come in with a very unusual twist. And so I just wanted to show you one example of that. The Great Shema is episode 14, and uh, it's wonderful because it looks at the oral law and the written law. This morning with the pastors, I shared about ritual purity 101 being the basis of modern Judaism. Jesus disses that. I shared with them how that there's actually a quote from the Talmud that says, if you eat without doing that ritual washing of your hands, it's like sleeping with a prostitute and you should be excommunicated from the synagogue. Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee who believes that's just as, now the Pharisees believe that's just as inspired as Isaiah, right? He goes to the house of a Pharisee who believes that's just as inspired as Isaiah, looks around and starts eating, and they want to kill him. He disses the oral law. He upholds the written law. Is that helpful? 
when you share with your neighbors and your communities around here because you're in the Bible Belt, very helpful because people think he's doing away with the written law. No, no, no. He's doing away with the oral law. So he's always in contention over that. So there's a whole episode that we look at that, the great Shema. We talked about that with the mezuzah, which means doorpost. We talk about that. And uh, we look at that in that series. Volume three is beautiful because uh, I wish I had time to tell you about it. We were not talking about Jesus. But uh, this is actually, I shot this picture in the Louvre. And uh, it shows the people reclining at a table. They're not sitting like I grew up with Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, like you probably did. We had the tapestry in the dining room. They're all sitting at chairs, but it doesn't say there's, it says they're reclining at the table. They recline on their left arm, eat with their right arm because the left arm is Sherman, Scott, Cottonelle, whatever you use. I don't know, but you don't eat with that hand. You eat with this hand, right? And so they would eat that way. And it's a seating order around the table. It's called a triclinium table. Rich episode in the series. And it's something that, that uh, people are attracted to, so it's easy to get them to study together. Episode 15 is Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. And I, I, I thought, you know, I'm doing all this seven one-month film trips. How do, we, how do I tell a story about Jesus as a Sabbath keeper in Israel, in Jerusalem? And so would you like to see? I'll just show you a one-and-a-half-minute clip. Is that good? A little bit of sound coming up. Doctrines with a powerful twist. So, you know what? Uh, you may have to use your microphone, I don't know. We probably had it this morning for the pastor, so it was playing out on my computer, and so the HDMI port. I'm sorry, this is the one time we didn't try it. I decided to open up at the Western Wall on Friday afternoon. So I'm going to be down in the crowd at the Western Wall, with my back to the Western Wall, looking up at my cameraman, who's three stories up, filming me, trying to be nonchalant because you can't have anything electronic down there for 45 minutes before sunset or you'll get thrown out, okay? So I'm trying to be nonchalant down in the crowd as they're coming down. And of course, off on the side, crowds are gathering. It's very interesting to hear the B-roll of what's going on that day. And uh, people think I've lost my mind because I'm out there talking to God <laughs> like this, but I'm really looking at the camera up there. So anyway, we'll see if, if this will work. We'll try it again, Pastor. Ready? You may have to cut me off. I don't know. Can they turn the light off up here? Someone Can someone try to turn the light off? Maybe right behind you. Is that a light? I don't know. Patty's my faithful. Okay. All right. Good. It's a special joy to come to the Western Wall in Jerusalem on Friday afternoon. You see families dressed in their finest garments streaming down to this location. It's a scene that will not quickly leave your mind, seeing and hearing the joyful expression of singing and dancing in celebration of the coming Sabbath. Throughout the week, there is often a somber mode as prayers are recited and even written and placed into the cracks of the structural wall that held up the platform of Herod's temple. But now that is replaced with joy, as can be seen upon the faces of the worshipers. Whether it's in the men's court or Orthodox, the women's you see, court, men and women. yeshiva students often begin the celebration of dancing as they come down to the wall. Soon it breaks out spontaneously in different locations. 
Even people like me with two left feet can be swept up with the joy of acknowledging God. By I had no idea what I was doing. I was an Adventist, so. Now, after 1,800 years, the joy of Sabbath celebration is vibrant once again in the city of Jerusalem. With the exception of a few years during the reign of Julian the Apostate, open Sabbath celebration was forbidden here in the city of Jerusalem. This changed in 1967 when this area of Jerusalem was conquered by the Israelis. Today's Sabbath celebration reigns once again here in the city of Jerusalem. The rhythm of G. So, anyway, that gives you a little. I'm sorry you couldn't. I hope you could hear hear it. Uh, so we were down there and uh, it was very exciting to be down there and you see the people dressed in their finest garments and you see the joy of Sabbath. Now here are the strictest Jews in the history of the world and they're down there dancing. Notice it's men with men, women with women, dancing to welcome in the Sabbath because it's a joy. So very different. I came back up to where the cameraman was and there were some of these um, young people that have, if you're Jewish, they give you a two-week trip called Israel Heritage and you go over and have a two-week trip with some of the coolest guys around with their guns and so on. And that's what was going on out there with the people I was dancing with. So they grabbed me and my wife made the cameraman shoot that picture so that I could put that into the video to tease you a little bit. Anyway, it's uh, what a joy to see Sabbath celebration. And as I said, I don't know if you could catch that, since the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 135 AD when the Jews were kicked out, with the exception of Julian the Apostate, Jews could not openly worship in Jerusalem at the Western Wall. They were allowed to go one day a year on that festival that I told you about, or that feast that I told you about yesterday, when they remembered the destruction of Jerusalem done conveniently on the same day by both Nebuchadnezzar and Titus. And so what would happen is people would see them coming that one day, and what did they call the place? The Wailing Wall. Because that's the only day they could go there, right? So today we would call it the Western Wall or the Kotel. We wouldn't call it Wailing Wall. It would be kind of, they don't wail. They, they, most of the time it's joy and worship and so on. So anyway, in the series we have uh, teachings and controversies where we look at some of these types of things. We look at uh, Lazarus with death and we look at different things. So the purpose is not to be a doctrinal series. The purpose is to do the life of Jesus. But if a doctrine can pop out, it'll pop out beautifully in the context of the life of Jesus. So... Uh, Check it out down at the ABC, or you can order it later on if you'd like, and uh, use it. It's a wonderful resource that you can do. We have these beautiful postcards like that, so you can actually send them out, pass them out to people in your area. And uh, just remind you why we're here for our series. we got the Exodus coming, the Kings coming. And somebody asked me yesterday, are there really seven DVDs? There's seven episodes on the DVD. This is a, a dual-layer Blu-ray DVD. And so it has 50 gigabytes, if you're into technology, of information. And then there's the companion study guides that go with it. Now, you can also do it online. We were able to break the code so that you can actually have a digital DVD online and have all the teaching stuff that goes back and forth. And it makes it uh, quite exciting. There's some of the different membership layout levels. You can play it on your computer that way. I know a lot of you don't even have DVD players anymore. And uh, also on your phone different things like that, and you have all the information that way. This is from yesterday, because we talked about the three unusual visitors. I know that was a little surprising for some of you, but you have all those pictures that we talked about, the maps and so on. So it's a great resource, again, just imagine doing it as a small group. People use it for homeschool. A lot of homeschoolers use it because it's wonderful to, to combine 
you're shaking your head because she just got the series for her, her children uh, for, for homeschooling. But it's wonderful because it's, it's combining history and geography and social studies, all these things together. And, uh, and then, of course, the Bible study there that they do on their own. So it's actually getting them into the Word. And then this unusual, this new feature that we have in the, in the series for the grand narrative, there's actually an extra page of information not presented necessarily in the series itself. And so that takes you into a deeper way. And then, of course, there's a discount. I know that the study guides are expensive when you buy one of them, but uh, they go down as cheap as $5.95 in bulk. And uh, so you can actually use them that way. There's a leader's manual that goes with it. The leader's manual amplifies some of the material I shared about Sodom yesterday is in the leader's manual because uh, as I was thinking through giving you more information that you can share if you're leading a small group, or you can do it actually as a public outreach from your church and send out an invitation that way. It's wonderful. But this afternoon, I want to talk to you about tension in the family. So yesterday, we talked about Abraham interceding for Lot and for Sodom, and he watched and saw the destruction of Sodom. And after interceding for Lot, Abraham leaves Hebron, and he moves south. And now he's going to move down from Hebron. He's going to go down to Beersheba, and he's going to go all the way down to near Kadesh Barnea. And he's going to live between Kadesh and Shur. Now, I want to just tell you, Kadesh Barnea is not a very pleasant place. It's a big spring, an oasis, but when you leave that, it's a desolate place. So I kind of understand why they might have been complaining there. It's hot and just a desert area, uh, to be honest. So he goes down. The Bible says Abram moved on from there into the region of the Negev, that means arid, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. So we can kind of see his little route going down there. Beersheba, we said, has eight inches of rain. Down there, it's about three or four inches of rain. So really good if you're trying to get to Florida in the wintertime, right? Because that's when the rain comes and you can feed your sheep, but not very good if you're going to be there in the summer. You want to go back up to Lake Junaluska. So here's a little video of the area, the general area around there. You can see how arid it is and so on. And yet these shepherds are making their living out there, going where I don't know. Then he's on the move again, and he moves up to Gerar. Now, Gerar is very interesting because this is a Philistine place. It's not the Philistines we read about with David. That's a different group of Philistines. But there's a group of Philistines there in the time of Abraham. David's Philistines, we believe, are from Cyprus. And so it's a different group, the Sea Peoples. And so we have a lot of research on that today. But Gerar was actually managed by that. You can see Gaza, Gerar. This is the richest farmland. The Gaza Strip is one of the richest areas for agriculture in all the land today. And so the Philistines have this good land. And the Israelites are in this poorer land. So it says in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, Sarah, She is my sister. What? They've already had the whole deal incorporated, right? That you're going to have a child, and Sarah's going to be the mother. And he does it again. She's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now it's interesting Isaac will have the same thing. So we think Abimelech is really like Pharaoh, just a a title, not a personal name. So he takes her. So it's a repeat of what we've seen before. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. So once again, God's got to intervene in spite of Abraham's weakness to deliver Sarah from the disaster that would have spoiled the plan of redemption because she was to be the mother of the line of the Messiah, right? She was to contribute to that. So Abimelech instructed to, re- was instructed to return Sarah 
and ask Abraham to pray for him because he's a prophet. Interesting, the man of faith who's lacking faith is asked to pray for the guy who mistakenly did something wrong, right? Very strange story. First time that the word prophet is used, Abimelech returns, and then he says, why did you deceive me, Abraham? Why didn't you just tell me she was your, your, your wife? It would have been okay. So Abraham explained he was afraid. What? The chief man's afraid? After God's been with him through all of this journey, appeared to him all these times, he's built all these altars. I just want to tell you, sometimes we put Abraham on a pedestal, I think probably too high. He's got some of those long eyebrows like I have, right? Got some of them probably growing on his ears. You understand what I'm saying? He's human. He's human, and he's working through his struggles, but he's learning to trust God and walk with God through all of this. And it gives me encouragement that even in my life, I can learn to trust and walk with God too, right? He's afraid. Then he goes on to explain how he had used this ruse all the way down. When he left Mesopotamia, everywhere he went, probably to Aleppo, and remember we talked about going to Aleppo, and Ebla, and Damascus. Everywhere he's using that. He got caught down in Egypt, and now he's caught once again here toward the end. What's going on with that? Deceptive. Wow. Really? So here we can see the pagan king is more honest than the prophet of God named Abraham. Am I stretching it too far? Sorry? Did he get another dowry? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So Abraham's allowed, uh, Abimelech allows him to keep the gifts. Well, he did get a dowry, and, and, uh, and to live in his territory doesn't kick him out like Pharaoh did. And this was after God had specified that Sarah would be the one to have the Messiah. Wow. So in time, she becomes pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Genesis 21 says, verses 2 and 3. The very time God had promised, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And Isaac means what? Laughter, because they both laughed when God said they were going to have this son. Chapter 21, verse 6 and 7 of Genesis. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Can you imagine those 13 years of raising Ishmael? All in the past now because she's got her own child. While she might have loved Ishmael, it's not like her own child. And now she's feeling redemptive, right? She's feeling good. Can you imagine the whole camp must be celebrating this? But if we're right yesterday, what are they calling Ishmael? Prince. Prince. For 14 years, he's been groomed to take over the family business, right? For 14 years, so we can see there's a tension building in the camp. We can see that there's a tension happening here. He's got two sons. He's fulfilling his name, Abraham, and not Abram, right? He's, not, he's the father of many nations now, right? And soon a shadow falls over the, the household. Sarah, I believe, had adopted her, Ishmael as her son. He's groomed him for 14 years. Now what will happen? The drama comes to a head, Genesis chapter 2, verses 8. The child grew, Isaac grew, and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. How old? Three? Four? We don't know, right? 
probably three or four, somewhere in there. He's being weaned. Text continues, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. What's her concern? The inheritance. She starts worrying now about what will follow. We've adopted this boy as our own. He was a surrogate. We've raised him as our own. But he's not going to take my son's inheritance. We've got to get her out of here. So it says he was mocking. So maybe the winning was at three. We don't know. But her happiness is marred. She had been laughing in this joyous occasion. And now Ishmael was mocking. The Hebrew is he was laughing. What was he laughing at? Did Sarah dress him in nice garments as a prince? What would you think, ladies? If you had a child in your old age, that's what I would think, too. Probably dressed him as a prince, and Ishmael's probably just sitting back, hey, I'm the prince. I'm the oldest child. I'm the one Abraham loves. Laughed at it. And she realizes there's going to be a question about succession coming, and she steps in to intervene. Laughing at what? Now, We've got a mature audience here. So uh, let me just say that some try and see fondling in this. If there's fondling going on in this, there's no way Abraham lets them stay in the camp, right? So I think people are way off base when they try and suggest that. It's a whole issue of succession, not sexual assault going on by Ishmael. So Ishmael was the oldest son and the heir apparent. Was he laughing at his younger brother dressed as a prince? No, it was an issue of succession. Sarah insists, can you imagine Abraham? His heart must be wrenched in half, don't you think? How could I do this? So it says in verse 11 of chapter 21 of Genesis, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. He loved that boy. He's poured everything into that boy for 13, 14 years now, 17 years now, if we're right. And all he's saying is, Sarah, why can't we get along, right? Why can't we get along? He's not seeing it from Sarah's perspective, is he? But he's trying to keep it together. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Scripture is very clear that the Messiah will come through the line of Isaac and not of Ishmael, right? And so he says, go ahead, listen to her, follow on, do what she's saying. Ishmael is loved, but the promised Messiah will not come through Ishmael. It will come through Sarah's son. Now here's one of the laws of Hammurabi, which Abraham and Sarah were, were apparently following. And this is what it says, Laws 170. If the father during his lifetime ever said, my children to the issue whom the slave bore him, thus treating them on an equal level with the children of his wife, and the slave's children shared equally in the inheritance. So Abraham's trying to navigate this domestic dispute by following the laws of his land and respecting those laws, right? And he called the boy his son and allowed the boy to call him father. So how does he negotiate all of that? However, the law goes on to say the firstborn of the first wife could be entitled to preferential treatment. And that's what Sarah's appealing to. My child will be that. But my child is not safe as long as this boy's in the camp. You have to send them away. Whoa. So the Bible says early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. 
she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Genesis 21, verse 14. What a sad morning that must have been as they go out. Guys, what do you think? Do you think he gave them a lot of water? A lot of food? What do you think he gave them a little bit so maybe they'd run out and come back? I find out, Abraham, I got a feeling he probably shortchanged it a little bit, hoping that maybe they'd come back and Sarah would have a change of heart. They could resolve this dispute and kind of live as a family and go on. So she leaves, and when she headed home to Egypt, she's kind of going down that way of Shur, and she gets lost in the desert. Remember the story? Chapter 21 of Genesis, verses 15 and 16. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Can you imagine? Again, the religious woman has put her out of the house. The one who's trying to teach her the goodness of God and how great God is and so on, put her out of the house, and it's harsh from her perspective, right? The Bible goes on to say, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Genesis chapter 21, verses 17 and 19. So now, God hears her prayer and responds. And remember we saw yesterday that she was the only person in the Bible to give God a personal name. What was the name? Remember? El Roy, the God who sees. Now God only not only sees her, God hears her prayer and answers it. How special is that? We go on, verse 20. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So Ishmael, and I've got it highlighted in red where the wilderness of Paran is, Ishmael lived in the desert of Paran, outside the border of the Promised Land, because he was not to inherit the Promised Land, right? So he's outside of that. While Abraham and God loved Hagar, only one line could fulfill the covenant promise and give birth to the Messiah. And Sarah's son was spiritual, as we will see later on this afternoon. Now, Paul uses the story of Abraham's two sons to illustrate two methods of salvation in Galatians chapter 4. So let's explore that. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you, unaware, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from where? Mount Sinai, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of what? He's calling Jerusalem the children of the slave woman. Isn't that where the descendants of Isaac are living? Yeah, isn't that where the descendants of Jacob are living? Interesting. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. Be careful. You know, there's stuff going around on the Internet and books that are written about Saudi Arabia being Mount Sinai. All that area was called Arabia at that time. Not just 
Saudi Arabia today. So be careful about that. Can't talk about that this afternoon, but just be careful latching on. Paul's not trying to say Saudi Arabia. The whole area is referred to as Arabia, including the Sinai. But he says it corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. So Jerusalem in Paul's day, filled with Jews, is in slavery because they haven't accepted Jesus the Messiah, right? Interesting. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So where are the children of Isaac? The real children of Isaac are from the real Jerusalem, not from the present city of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? A little bit? So there's two women, two sons, two covenants, right? Representing two systems of salvation. Ishmael was based on human effort, what human beings can do to achieve God's purposes, right? Isaac is based on the divine promise. They're looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking back to the Messiah. It's the same Messiah. There's an interesting twist in the story now. Paul identifies the children of Hagar as the present city of Jerusalem. Amazing. Those who are trying to be justified by keeping the law. Now, yesterday we talked about that, that pivotal text, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The key word that Paul uses is justified, right? How is a person made right before God? He's not dealing with should you be obedient, should you not be obedient. He's asking the question, how are you made righteous before God? And it's by divine promise, not by human works, right? So he makes that very, very clear, and that's what we're seeing. Paul equates the Jews of his day who rejected Jesus as Messiah, as the descendants of Hagar, even though they live in Jerusalem. Kind of turns things upside down on his head, doesn't it? Especially in the modern context of what we hear our friends teaching on television and the radio. Paul goes on to say, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, that is, if you let yourself become a Jew, if you're a Gentile and you let yourself become a Jew, Christ will be of no value to you at all. You who are trying to be what? Not righteous even, but you're trying to be what? Justified. Don't miss that. It's very important. If you're trying to be justified by keeping the law, justified by the law, you've been alienated from Christ and you've fallen away from grace. So Paul is crystal clear that salvation by grace through faith is a gift similar to Sarah having the child in her old age and that Hagar is his basis of Judaism is trying to be justified by keeping the law. Yesterday we talked about that old covenant when people tell you, you that you're an old covenant Christian, you can be saved by keeping the law if you want. Nobody can be saved by keeping the law because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? So they misunderstand. And if I can dare say it, you just have to outgrace them and say, well, let's, talk, let's look at what the Bible really says about the new covenant. And you read the new covenant where God forgives our sins, and by his grace he writes his law in our mind so we know what is right, in our hearts so we love what is right, correct? Okay. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now let me tell you what I I believe. I believe that Paul celebrates Shabbat. Paul obviously celebrates Passover. He obviously celebrates Pentecost. He's got a unique problem in his day since we're here in Paul. We have a couple minutes. Let me just address this. He's got a unique problem in his day. How do the Gentiles incorporate into this? Do they have to do that? He clearly says, no, you can't be justified by doing that. The Council of Jerusalem, when it says, unless 
a person is circumcised, they cannot be saved. They're saying you can believe in Jesus all you want, but if you don't become a Jew, you cannot be saved. That's where Paul draws the line. They have the Council of Jerusalem. They deal with that question, and the question is no. You do not have to become a Jew. Paul, I believe, will ultimately say in Colossians chapter 2 that you've been so completely forgiven in Jesus Christ, don't let anybody judge you whether you participate in Jewish festivals or not. He does because he's a Jew. And he writes something in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 that's so important. He says, as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk ye in him. You receive him as a Jew. It's not wrong to keep Passover. You receive him as a Gentile. Don't let anybody judge you whether you keep Passover or not, right? So we've got some people who misunderstand this even in our own church, don't we? They run around and try and tell you that you need to keep all these festivals and so on. They misunderstand the root of what Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 2 and in Galatians on this matter. So there's nothing wrong with that. Problem is we try and say we're holier if we do that. Huge mistake, Paul says. Huge mistake, right? Hopefully that's clear. So anyway, two women, two sons, two covenants. Ishmael based on human effort. Mount Sinai, earthly Jerusalem, those trying to earn justification by obedience. Isaac based on God's promise. Jerusalem above, those who are justified by faith in the Messiah. How is it with you? Have you accepted the promise of Jesus as your Messiah? And, of course, what is the evidence if you have? Hmm. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you've truly accepted that, it's going to be manifested in your life, isn't it? Faith expressing itself through love. Well, I want to build on that right now, because these two sons from two women, Abraham loves both of them. He loves Hagar and Ishmael. He loves Sarah and Isaac. But only one son could inherit the promise and bear the Messiah. So God instructs him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Now Abraham can focus 100% of his attention on training the boy Isaac to follow him, right? He can spend 100% of his affection is now on Isaac, preparing this boy to take over the family and to take over the priesthood of the family. Tomorrow we're going to look at Abraham's seed. Sometimes there's some, um, some strange things going on with Isaac and that boy named Esau. I'm not a psychologist. My uncle is a psychoanalyst, but I didn't get it from him. But I do wonder what's going on psychologically with that, right? So we'll explore some of that tomorrow. The older parents spare no expense preparing their heir to be ready to take over the family business. Sometimes older parents dote a lot, don't they? They know how precious the gift of life is, and they're pouring everything into this boy, everything they can into this boy. Can you imagine the pride? Sarah, and now Abraham is sharing when things have settled down, the other family's gone, watching him grow up. After this long journey, they're now satisfied. They're 100 in their 90s and in their hundreds now. The future is bright because God's blessed them with this boy. At that time, Abimelech, remember he's the king of Gerar, that's there and highlighted, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Abraham is growing so strong that now the Philistine king is worried that Abraham's going to be too strong and overwhelm him and come take his land. So he now wants to make a covenant with Abraham so he doesn't come over and take his property. Okay? Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I've shown to you. In other words, don't come after me, right? All right. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. He says, I want to make this covenant with you, but you, you, you took one of my wells, man. This is not good, right? 
So here we can kind of see Beersheba. We can see a tamarisk tree, we can see a well, we can see the walls. Unfortunately, the walls don't go back to the time of Abraham, but there's two wadis or dry riverbeds that come together here. So there's water here in this part of the world, and they, they could dig a well. And the Bible says Abraham dug wells here. This well will be very similar to the one that Abraham dug, although this one would be at least a thousand years after the time of Abraham in the picture that we have here. So, except these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well, Abraham said. So that place is called Beer Sheba, because the two men swore an oath there. So Abraham says, let's do it. Now you recognize that I've dug this well, and that's how it gets the name Beer Sheba. So Beer means well, Sheba, seven, or oath. You can see here that the well was actually, they could run, pull the water up and let it come down and feed their animals. So it means the well of swearing or the well of the seven. Okay. Abraham, the Bible says, planted a Tamarisk tree in Beersheba, so here at the Israel National Park, where we have Tel Beersheba, they planted a tamarisk tree. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So now Abraham has moved from the relatively fertile area of Hebron all the way down into the desert, and he's living down there. Kind of odd, isn't it? He's at peace with his wife. He's at peace with his neighbors. He's enjoying the fulfillment of God's promises. And we're not sure how long this lasted. He stayed for a long time. Because the Bible goes on to say, sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. That's been at least 12 years since he's heard God speak to him. It's a long time. Boy, Isaac's older now. God calls his name. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. And he says, great, man, a camping trip. How wonderful. I'll get to spend time with my boy. We'll go camping. This will be good, right? Let's just break it down. Sounds so good. Take your son. Yeah, yeah. And then he, then he adds, your only son. Can I deviate for a moment? Is that okay? We talked about the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? Jesus prayed that prayer at least twice a day, every day of his life, as a, as a human being. Okay? Since the time he could talk. What does it say? Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Eloheinu, Echad, Yahweh. Yahweh, our gods, plural, is one Yahweh. That's what it says literally in the Hebrew. Yahweh, Lord, remember we talked about that with a small capital O, small capital R, the Yahweh Eloheinu. So El is singular, one. Elohim is plural. This happens to be Eloheinu. It's the plural version. So Yahweh, our gods, is one Yahweh. Now here we have your only son, your one son, but it does not use the word Echad like it does in the Shema. It uses the word Yaqid, only one. Abraham doesn't have, he only has one son of promise. There's not two, right? Echad is very interesting because it's used of the evening and the morning were Echad day. Adam and Eve became Echad flesh. Two people became one. It's a compound unity. So it's very interesting. The prayer that Jewish people pray twice a day, now they pray three times a day, actually says, Yahweh our gods is one compound Yahweh. So if we're right in that, there's a father Yahweh, the Son Yahweh, and the Spirit Yahweh, right? And we're seeing that right in the Hebrew text itself that they pray every day. 
So take your only son, your Yaqid son, whom you love. Yes, God, I understand. I've only got one son of promise. I love him with all my heart. It's been really good these past 12 years, Lord. This has been one of them. Go to the region of Moriah. Great. We've got a camping trip coming up. This is going to be good. Sacrifice him. There's a burnt offering on the mountain. What? Sacrifice him there on that? Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Are you, are you, did I hear right? Do what? But Lord, Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise you gave us 35 years ago. How can I sacrifice him? If I sacrifice him, how can he fulfill the promise? You said it was going to come through him and not through Ishmael. How, how can I do this, Lord? Can you imagine what it was like? A punch to the gut? Stunned? What? Confused? How could this be? How could you ask me to do something like this? Why? Whew. Questions. Who does Abraham tell? Do you think it goes to Sarah? I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that. Does it go to Isaac? I doubt that. Nobody he can go to. He's got to bear it inside. Has he heard correctly? What will he do? How can he do it? Just imagine that night as he wrestles. Can you imagine wrestling in prayer with that? Man. He remembers Genesis 21, 6 and 7. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in her old age? Can you imagine? She's got to be over 100 now. How do I tell her that God wants me to sacrifice her son on Mount Moriah? Heavy, duty stuff. He struggles alone with his emotions. The verse, chapter 22, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. It's going to take three days to go from Beersheba up to Mount Moriah. Three days. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, these people don't understand the land at all, so it doesn't look like that. But anyway, best we have. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Do you see something special in that text? Wow. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So whatever's going on, Abraham somehow has accepted the promise that his boy is going to be the fulfillment of those promises. And even though they go through this thing that he doesn't understand, that boy's still going to be the fulfillment of those promises, right? So we're going to go over there and we're going to come back Somehow, some way, I don't understand, he says, but I've learned to trust my God about this. And so, in the midst of that deep despair, he still believes God's got a purpose. The apostle to the Hebrews lets us in on the secret. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So he believes, he trusts. You know that song, sometimes we don't understand what goes on. That song, when you, when you can't understand God's hand, trust his heart. That's why it's important to study our Bibles. That's why it's important to know about God. Because the more we know about him, 
the more we can trust him, especially when things are not playing out the way we think they should, right? Sometimes we think we should have a free pass in life. Sometimes we think a lot of different things. But the more we know, the more we can trust when it doesn't work out that way. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and himself carried the fire and the knives. He's carrying coals, right? There's a little lantern and they go up. Text goes on. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Whoa, can you imagine? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. What a walk. How in the lowest moment, he's crushed by his son's question. He speaks prophetically of his hope. God himself will provide the sacrifice, the lamb. That's the NIV. Notice the American Standard Version. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. But look at the Jewish Bible. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What? The Jewish Bible actually captures it. God will provide himself as the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Talk about prophetic significance. Wow. God will not only provide a substitute. Abraham says God will be the substitute. God will be the substitute. Abraham has great faith in this. Does he know? You think he really knows? Now, the location of Moriah is not identified in the book of Genesis. Samaritans believe it's on Mount Gerizim, where they live today. They think that's meant that. They don't accept the prophets. They only accept the Torah. The Muslims believe it's in Mecca. That's why they do that whole thing about going on the Hajj every year and so on. They think that Abraham took Ishmael to Mecca and so on. And that was Mount Moriah. In Chronicles, however, it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So the Hebrew scriptures are clear. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem, right? Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple courts, John 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Does Abraham know? Yeah. Jesus said he saw my day. He sees me as the lamb of God that would come and die in place of his son, in place of all of us, right? And die for us. Your father rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he rejoiced in it. When they reached the place that God had told them about, the Bible says, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 and 10. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your only son. And he drops the knife. And Abraham looked up and saw there in the thicket a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So just at that moment, when he's following through, the Lord intervenes and provides 
a substitute. The substitute representing Jesus that would come as the Lamb of God in the future. Jesus that would come and die for all. Probably a wild ibex caught with those big, beautiful horns. I should have put a picture in here to let you see what one looks like. Because we look at John chapter 1, verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said when Jesus came down to the banks of the Jordan River. So Jesus is the Lamb of God that all these lambs are pointing forward to. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord, or Yahweh, will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of, the, of, the, of Yahweh it will be provided, because God provided himself a lamb for the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Do you think Ishmael would have participated in this? Hate to say it, he's a great guy, but it took spiritual perceptivity to participate in this, right? Isaac has to be a very unusual young man because he's stronger than his dad. His dad's over 100 years old. He could have easily fought his way out of that. There's no servants around. He could have easily escaped, but he doesn't. Somehow, some way, he participates in this. He trusts his father. Incredible. I think now Abraham probably stands back and says, Now understand God. Why he said it was going to be Sarah's son and not Hagar's son, right? Because this boy is spiritual. He's got a spiritual inclination. In spite of all the mess I've made in my life, he's got a spiritual inclination. He hears your voice, and he follows. The Bible says in verse 19, Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. Can you imagine? As they're going back. I can't imagine when Abraham gets back and comes back to Sarah what had happened. I'm not sure how she evaluated the story, are you? I'm sure she's relieved, but she probably thought, what? You're going to do what? Right? But it lets us see an incredible window, doesn't it? Now, I pondered very hard. It was interesting. I'm working on a series we call Mysteries of the Fifth Gospel. We're trying to pitch to the History Channel. So I watched with interest. What was that? The Bible. It was on History Channel. Did you see some of that? The Bible. I only saw the first episode. And I was kind of surprised with that first episode because it showed ninja angels coming to Sodom. Remember that? Ninja angels coming in. And, and this episode, it showed, you know what happened? It was very unusual, extra, extra biblical. It showed Sarah tracking after them to Mount Moriah. I'm thinking, this, this is the hardest story, in the, one of the hardest, if not the hardest, it's one of the hardest stories in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, mentally unbalanced people use this to kill their children, Right? This is a very, very difficult story. And I'm thinking, if you're going to change and do extra-biblical stuff, why don't you lay on some other stuff about what's really going on here and not Sarah tracking after them to try and intervene? All through his life, God's been trying to reveal what he's like to Abraham. Now, I think you've heard me say, but if you haven't, let me just say it again. Over 50% of the world today trace their spiritual roots to Father Abraham. 33% of the world is is Christian, about 22% of the world is Muslim, and about 1% Jewish, or half a percent, tenth of a percent, somewhere in there. It's about 52% of the world. Pretty amazing. 
What was it about Abraham that attracted one out of two people today in our secular world to still trace their roots to this Bedouin shepherd who was going up and down the king's highway, right? With his sheep and goats. What was it? So somehow through his life, God's revealing what he's like. And people are hearing these stories about Abraham and they're being attracted to it. They're being attracted to monotheism, to one God. But now God does something very unusual. He teaches what God is not like. God is not like the Canaanites. He does not require the sacrifice of your children. I believe he lets this whole thing play out to be a living drama, to reveal to the nations all around that I'm not like that. I'm like this. Right? And so it stands in contrast. What God is not like is just as important as to what he's like. I'll never forget, as a young Bible worker, um, Pastor Mark Finley's evangelistic team in New England, we had another pastor who became a wonderful mentor, O.J. Mills. And I don't know, it seemed like we were in some gro- in drugstore or something. I don't know. I don't, we were in a public place, and this girl was reacting to Pastor Mills, probably trying to give her a piece of literature or something. I don't know what was going on. But she says, I don't believe in God. Leave me alone. You know what he said? Tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either. Well, that's pretty good, you know. And I, I remember my beautiful grandmother who gave Bible studies to Crystal Earnhardt and John when they were young, back in Salisbury, and uh, going to the church school, Janice, in Salisbury, we had the music playing, and she was a great lady. She let me play some different music, and the new song had come out by George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, and she looked and she said, wow, even the Beatles believe in, in Jesus as Lord. Uh, really? What was his Lord in the song? Harry Krishna. And so the name Lord is contentless until we assign content to it, right? And so here we're seeing content assigned to Abraham's God, what he's like and conversely what he's not like. And as a result, it draws our hearts to this great God of Abraham that we're seeing. So John 3, verse 16, God the Father who so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Abraham shared a deep experience with the Father. Abraham and Isaac both shared this near-death experience. Close, powerful. But the difference for the Father, there's no angel to intervene. Right? There's no angel to intervene. God himself God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you this afternoon for this time to drift away to a faraway time and place. We find ourselves in this incredible story, questioning, wondering, and yet being satisfied that you were revealing what you were not like to Abraham, to the Canaanites, and even people today, not requiring the sacrifice of our children, but instead allowing the sacrifice of your Son on Calvary, that we might have life eternal as the Lamb of God. And so we want to accept that sacrifice in our behalf this afternoon. Lord Jesus, we want to accept that by faith, invite you in to be the Lord of our life, and to continue guiding our life both today and tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. And we thank you for hearing our prayer now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, tomorrow we're going to build on this a little bit and try and wrap up our series. We're not going to get to... uh, the Exodus, but we're going to talk about Abraham's seed.
and how that uh, all nations will be blessed. We're going to look at, uh, at Jacob and Isaac and uh, uh, Rebecca and those stories. And we're going to look at something called, What is Your Name? One of my favorite stories, I ran into this as I was filming the series at the Jabok River. And I think you'll be blessed by that. So uh, happy to take some questions if you have questions or if you'd like to come up and see the materials. I'm happy to chat with you and uh, look forward to seeing you tomorrow afternoon. Any questions? Before